and Matt Show, the disc golf podcast you've been looking for. What's up, everybody? It is the Nick and Matt Show, episode number 16. This is the first show that I'm doing without my good buddy, Nicholas Carl. Now, if you remembered, Last week, we mentioned that Nick is going to be playing at the Green Mountain Championship, and that's happening today, tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday. And shout out to Nick. Now, <laughs> maybe he'll jump in the chat here. So if he jumps in the chat, go ahead and you know ask your questions away. He mentioned he might, although his phone, something that Nick always does, he comes to the show and his phone's like dying on batteries. So I ended up grabbing a really long charging cable here from my wall and it's like 10 feet long and he can sit here with the show, but he's going out to eat right now and um, up in Vermont and, but he said he might jump in and my plan is to jump in as well. So I'm going to go ahead and do that right now and say, Hey everyone. So for those of you listening to our podcast later, this is a live episode recording where we are going to take episode snippets from the previous, by the way, it's the 16th episode. We're going to take previous episode snippets, like three minute sections, five minute sections. I think our longest might be 12, but where we thought the content was so good that if you've listened to the episodes before, that you will enjoy them again. And if you are just joining us for the first time ever, it's going to give you a little bit of a taste of the previous 15 episodes that you missed out on, you want to go check out. So, Nick, if you're in the comments here, go ahead and, you know, let us know and we'll check in with you. Um, so Nick shot a minus two today on Brewster Ridge. That, ladies and gentlemen, is good enough to be 10 or 11 points higher than his rating. So good for him. Um, that was a, I believe, a thousand and one rated round today. Now, he can talk about it next week if he wants to, but he, <laughs> Nick just jumped in. What's up, Nick? Uh, so he can talk about it if he wants to, but he was kind of a little bummed about his last five holes of play. He was coming in, I believe, four under par. Then he had an unfortunate OB situation and kind of struggled to finish out. But minus two, guess who else shot minus two? Simon Lazat, Paul Uliberry, um, Chris Clemens. So I'm going to like, I could just keep going down the list. He, he's doing well for himself um, and it could have been easily better. And I know everyone can always say that it's such a disc golfer mentality, um, but good for him. And um, so tomorrow Fox run for him. But what I want to do is prep, prep you guys for the show tonight. Uh, Nick says he has 1% battery, so he'll stay on as long as he can. can. Um, and when I play these episode snippets back, obviously podcast listeners enjoy them, and then I'll follow up, and I'm going to comment on maybe new opinions that I've made since that show. Um, so I'll tell you when we go back to the snippets, and then I'll come back live uh, recording again. And what I'll do is I'll jump in the chat while the snippets are playing. So we totally appreciate everyone here for jumping in. This is different than we've ever done. Again, Nick is not here um, in person, but he's in the chat room right now. So if you're listening post, feel free to jump on live someday and join us in the chats as we record. Uh, you can do that. Facebook, the Nick and Matt show. Um, you could jump on YouTube as most of you often do. Uh, you can 
that's realistically the best ways to get in, or you can comment post. All right. So without further ado, let me go ahead and pull up this first snippet. Here is the preface for this. Hannah Macbeth, she came on our show, the second episode ever, and she talked about, this was kind of right before the Disc Golf Pro Tour relaunched. And she talked about um, what it was like to be a part of the second off-season, off-season 2.0, and what it's going to look for like for her coming back. So let me go ahead and get that started up for you guys, and then I'll offer my opinions following the snippet. So here we go. This first snippet is about five and a half minutes. I'll be back with you. I'm going to jump in the chat now, but I'll be back to discuss my opinions in about five and a half minutes. Here you guys go. Yeah, with it coming back or, or the feelings you had off of it and now the announcement of it coming back. Yeah. Um, this is something I haven't really shared with anybody, but a couple of people in my, my close circle. So this podcast is super fun because we're just airing it all out, which is always fun to do publicly in front of strangers. Um, but anyways, welcome to my life. <laughs> so, uh, I was really struggling with that thought process of why don't I miss this? Why, you know, is, do I want to be a professional disc golfer? Is my goal to win worlds? Do I want to do all these things? Why did I take a sponsorship with this crap? Why am I sponsored at all? Um, you know, what is my, what do I want to do? And so I've really been figuring that out and, uh, trying to navigate my own mental toughness and allow myself grace to grow as an athlete, because I really have been like thrown into the fire. I turned pro, really early in my career because I felt like after I won my first A tier, um, I was kind of like bullied by someone and they made me feel really insecure about winning and they made me feel like I was a bagger even though I'd never played and there wasn't, I don't know, it was really hard. And so um, I was like pressured from the outside and I didn't handle that well. And so I like, when I played really well in Europe, I took cash and turned pro and I just ever since have been trying to figure out, okay, am I going to dedicate my life to this? If I do that, what does that look like? And I think what happened was I decided, yeah, I'm going to dedicate my life to professional disc golf and I'm going to do everything that I can. And I'm going to get training from Paul and I'm going to work out, eat well and do all this stuff. And I did this whole winter. I ate really well. I worked out a lot. I played with Paul. I practiced and I'll let you know that I did not, my body composition did not change. Um, my mentality got stronger, but my, and my skills got stronger, but at the tournaments, I didn't play amazing. I had poor finishes at like all of the tournaments that I played at, even though I played well in some areas that really affected me. And it really brought me back to this place where I was like, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Like, could I be excellent at something else? Am I just wasting my time? You know? Yeah. What am like? I'm not contributing anything to my family. If anything, I am costing us money because the tournaments are not cheap. And even though I can have sponsorships and I can, you know, find people who want to uh, sponsor my events or whatever, like workout deals with brands and stuff, I was really, really having this crisis. And then at the same time, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then bam, COVID-19 and everyone yep. had to go home and everyone went home and they were all like, man, I was like just getting warmed up. I can't believe this happened. And I just was like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think I want to take a step back and let myself get better at disc golf before I sign up for all these tournaments because yeah. you can't get better 
when you have a tournament every single weekend and you never have a chance to practice outside of a course. Yeah, you you don't have a chance um, to kind of hone in the skills that you might have messed up on during that tournament. You know, you really don't because by the time Sunday ends, you guys, if you're driving the RV, you're pretty much on the way to the tournament that night. And you're driving either yeah. through the night, you're getting there Monday, maybe Tuesday, then you have two or three days to practice. And that's pretty much just learning the course. And once you've learned the course, now it's like, well, I didn't really get enough time to work on my circle one putting or, you know, my hyzers feel off, kind of something like that. That's what it's like. And in the meantime, in the meantime, more women are coming onto the tour. Yeah. Like Missy Gannon wasn't here a couple of years ago and mm -hmm. now she's here and she's bumped me down a couple of pegs. And, you know, all of a sudden we have Evelina and Hannah coming out to the yeah. U.S. and traveling more. And then Kristen Starr comes out and she travels more. And then you have women that come to, you know, every other event or they come for like one side of the coast. And it's really, really, it's the hardest thing in the world to be touring and to travel and to play and to not finish well and to not have anyone in your corner being like, you know, as someone who responds really well to like affirmation, I felt like I wasn't being affirmed by anything in disc golf. And at the time I was really doubting myself. And then Brody came in to our like group and he had all this excitement and all this energy and all this drive. And he kept talking about how he wants to be one of the best disc golfers ever. And he wants to, you know, make all these accomplishments. And he was like, he kept saying things like, you know, if you don't want this, and he didn't know that I was struggling with this. He was just saying, because people kept asking him, like, do you want to be a professional disc golfer? Wow, that's so crazy. And he kept saying in all of his interviews, like, and to us, you know, if I didn't want to be the best, why would I be in the sport? Mm -hmm. And I was just like, how do you keep grinding out and putting yourself through something when you don't know if you even want, you know, the end result of like a yeah. championship or a win or a world. And people will be like, Oh, I hope you and Paul both win worlds one year. And I'm just thinking like, man, like, is that really what I want? Like, Whoa. So that's what I've been talking about. Um, and so during the off season 2.0, uh, I've made a lot of moves to work more closely in the media. All right. So we just heard from Hannah and I'm over here in the chat room. I'm getting distracted. Rocky McGuire is dropping super chats and, and I'm having a great time. And those of you who are listening and catching up on the snippet there, Hannah said a few things. But before I recap Hannah, let me just address something because I know some of you are going to watch that video and see how invested I was in my phone. And this was, an, this was like an hour and a half or two hour long show. But for this one amazing snippet of information that hannah was sharing i had just sold a car a car at my residence that i was selling and the individual who purchased the car was knocking on my door at my house outside the studio asking for the key uh like demanding it and i'm like what do i do i can't run and grab that and so i got on my phone and I was texting him and saying, hey, like, you're going to have to come back or whatever. And so that was what that text message was about. I felt horrible later. Uh, YouTube comments were really kind of just calling me bad names. <laughs> Long story short, that's what that was about. But as far as Hannah making moves for the media, I mean, we saw already she's made a move to start this podcast called Party, The Party. And it's like all about FPO disc golf. And 
Her and Christine Jennings are doing that and excellent. They're syndicated with the Disc Golf Pro Tour. And that's one move. And I mean, Hannah, do you agree? Hannah is really, I don't want to say fluid, but in her conversation with the camera, very comfortable, it seems. Um, and then, obviously, that's the the party, the podcast. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. Um, but then today, literally the day of this recording, we look at the Green Mountain Championships and we see her pop up, not Terry Miller. She's on the ground, roving reporter, if you will, on the ground in the field reporting. Um, that's awesome. I honestly believe if that's what she wants to do, I have full support from us, the Nick and Matt show. Obviously, Nick. Really good friends with Hannah. But she's comfortable there. I appreciate hearing what she has to say. I think she offers insight um, from a different perspective than we're used to. And she's the wife of Paul Macbeth. I mean, did that come off a little weird to you? <laughs> to one for Hannah to have to do that for her own husband following around. We watched, I watched today live and she had to ask her husband, how did it go? What did you think about this? And now the intricacies of a marriage, she obviously has that connection to probably already kind of know what Paul's thinking. So to ask it out loud or to put him on the spot for a question she might not ask post round normally off camera, good for her. Good job for her. Um, so that's my take on that snippet. Um, it's gotta be totally unique being married and, and go listen to that whole episode. I think it's episode number two. It's gotta be totally unique. And she talks about this in episode two to be married to the world's best disc golfer, uh, to have enjoyed the sport yourself, got married, and then you now are trying to figure out your identity in the disc golf world. So excellent job for her. Totally support her. She's going to be back on our show again soon. Stay tuned for that. Uh, this next snippet we're pulling up is Simon Lazat discussing high-speed drivers. Uh, I forget what episode this was. I want to say it was 10. And by the way, we have a verbal agreement with Simon that he comes on every 10 episodes if he's available. So he was on episode 1, episode 10, and we're coming up. This is episode 16. Stay tuned. We're going to try to line him up for episode 20. But Simon Lazat talks high-speed drivers. This is probably our longest snippet. So I think it's worth it. We only pick the parts that we think are totally worth it. 12 minutes here. It's, it's going to seem like a little while. It's good content. But take it in. Soak it in. This is some good stuff here. All right. Here comes Simon. Yeah. The hot take is this. Yeah. I was going to say, like, my opinion is, now, when I say hot take, Really talk to me off camera and I'll be a nice guy about it. But hot take for the show. If you're an amateur, you shouldn't be throwing like more than speed, like 10 even. That's me. I, I consider for the amateur high speed to be like more than speed 10. And I feel like Agreed. until you are a pro, you probably shouldn't. Again, that's a hot take. You shouldn't be trying to throw anything faster than that. Figure out the lower speed. Um, so that's the topic. Simon, what's you are someone who is known for power far throws are you throwing high speed drivers when you do those distance shots yes okay like what what's the uh speed range that you would say to get your furthest distance i know speed and numbers it's all kind of subjective but like in general is it like yeah 14 or what um i've thrown the 14 speeds a couple times i mean Discmania doesn't have any 13 or 14 speeds in their lineup so i'm stuck with 12 speeds <laughs> 
No, you. It's kind of a gimmick, but <laughs> I mean, the whole the whole thing is with the distance drivers. I mean, of course, pros for the the faster your arm speed is, the more of a difference you'll actually notice between a high speed driver and a fairway driver. Um, but really, if you're like 100% honest with your, with yourself and comparing your shots on an open field and throwing a perfect shot with your fairway driver followed by a perfect shot with your speed 12 driver, the difference is not remarkable. Just like between a putter and a mid-range, the difference is not remarkable. I mean, saying that you know how to throw a putter far. Like, I can throw my putter 450 and I can throw my mid-range maybe 470, maybe. Like, it's yeah. really not that big of a difference. And the problem is with disc golf that there's obviously no official coaches or teachers and most people just learn by doing, just teach themselves or learn from someone who, who isn't really that good at it themselves and doesn't really know how to do it. And people really try to learn how to go disc golf before they learn how to throw a shot. So they try to put everything together before they even have the fundamentals on how to throw a frisbee. And one thing that is great to learn is throwing a frisbee, like a lid, we call it lids here. Because um, if you know how to throw a lid, Throwing a disc is very easy because a lid takes a lot of spin, a lot of touch, and the faster your disc is, the less touch it needs, really. And that's why beginners mm. that start off with high-speed drivers just completely ruin their form and their touch. And most people that start like that will never be good at throwing putters or mids far because they just have no touch because high-speed drivers don't fly like frisbees at yeah, all yeah they just require you to throw it on a massive anheuser because you know it's going to flex out on yeah. you so throw it on an annie and that's how you get your 150 200 feet of distance when you first start playing yeah i think wow what's what's the thing it's like if you're just starting off then it will literally not even make a difference if you throw a glidey fairway driver over a speed mm -hmm. 14 Colossus. Yeah. Uh, that's the only high-speed disc that I know. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's really really helpful. I I always used to say that play putter rounds only, play catch with a fastback, with a frisbee, or with a putter, um, and just getting the reps in and figuring out how to control the angles on slow discs, and then you'll be forever thankful when you're throwing those high-speed drivers because you'll actually notice a difference. Yeah, for sure. And um, people know I'm with Kids Disc Golf, and this is the Nick and Matt show. But one of the things that I always promoted for juniors, one is let them throw whatever they want because they want to have fun. That's fine. But if you're wanting them to get yes. better, put a like I put a Sonic in Hunter's hand when he was like four years old, a light, like a 120 Sonic, like DX 120. And I feel like that taught him how the flight of a disc works. Like he had to do that right to get it to fly. Mm -hmm. And so that just kind of, I appreciate what you said there. And it's like, all right, we're, we're doing something right. We're teaching them how a disc flies. So, and, and he's good now. True. He understands the flight of a disc. He understands it. You're right. Now he's, I, yeah. he wants to still throw faster and faster and I'm still working him up there, but now we can give him a sidewinder 150 or whatever. And now he understands I can actually hyzer flip the disc. Like he understands a hyzer flip. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, my dad, my dad, when we, when I was younger, my pre disc golf times, even we would play catch, and we would go like 
maybe 100 feet apart and uh, put a tree right between us. And he would have me throw so many turnovers around the tree at him until I got it perfect every time. Turnover around the tree, then hyzers around the tree, and later a couple straight shots away from the tree. But uh, that turnover shot is the hardest shot to figure out in disc golf. Yeah, oh yeah. And uh, one thing is to play catch with someone and put an obstacle in the middle and then just keep throwing a turnover around it and around it because that's where you get your reps in and it's actually really fun to play catch. And once you figure out the flight and the glide of a disc, if you get the angle just right, that's pretty fun to watch. I was just going to say that is, and that makes it fun too. And again, I'm going back to kids, but can I, my son is not the average kid, but I was going to say amateurs, what we're talking about a lot of here, high speed disc, like who should and shouldn't throw them. I, <laughs> we're going to quote you actually for our thumbnail title. It'll say like our, our spe high speed disc gimmicked 14s and 15s, but Nick, yeah. um, what's, what speed disc are you throwing? Are, do you have high speed disc? Do you have any yeah. of those 14s? No, I, I don't. <laughs> think Discraft comes out with anything more than a 13. I think the Nuke is 13 speed and that I actually don't even have one of those in the bag right now. I just throw Zeus's and forces as, you know, Zeusance is my distance. You know, if I really want to push some big distance, that's what I throw. And if I want, you know, secured stability, I throw force. Those are both 12 speed. They both have really comfortable rims on them. Um, I think one of the reasons why the Nuke goes in and out of my bag right now, the Nuke's bomb. Like they really do. They are massive distance discs. But the rim is so big that it's fluky. It's, I don't know. As a I don't newer always... player, as a newer player, I, I'm, well, I've been doing, what, 13 years now? I don't know. Let's go back yeah. to when did that, when did the nuke come out? Either way, yeah, exactly. I was like, that came out a while ago. And yeah. I was like, a oh, nuke. It says it's a high speed disc. It's going to go really far. Is yeah. that how it works, Simon? Like, yeah. <laughs> it... I mean, if, if you just look at like the old school Innova discs, like back when the Gazelle was like the number one speed driver, yeah. it says like, ultra super power long range driver just hyping it up as much as possible and i think brody like nailed it when he said in the video we shot with jomez when he said the more you know about flight numbers the less good of a disc golfer you probably are and i think that's pretty rough. yes I, I have always said i think <laughs> flight numbers are the dumbest thing that you can just slap on a disc only in the sense of like you know Paul came out with the Zeus. So I bought a Zeus knowing that it was going to be to start a stable distance driver that if I beat it in, it would start turning over. And that the only the only flight number that I paid attention to ever on a disc was the speed of it. Huh. It was just like, you True. know, okay, the Onyx is a speed 10 that fits that perfect highway or um, excuse me, hybrid driver. Mid-ranges and putters, I never cared about their flight numbers because I don't know. Pretty much anything fairway and above, that's all I cared about was the speed. All right. So I'm going to try that. I'm on it. Honestly, I've been playing a long time, but I'm still trying to get better. And I feel like I've been starting to figure out the pull and the release and the whole nine yards with I feel like this year after 13 years, I'm going to take out like I throw a lot of Discraft and of a um, I'm going to take out something that's like like I said, like speed 10. I was throwing destroyer. What speeds a destroyer? 12. OK, so. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. I'm the numbers. kind I'm of not going a good disc golfer. <laughs> no, you said the speed is something. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like. Does the speed get changed, Simon, when it's like a different stability plastic? So like G star is very like, I guess Nick flippy. would say it's understable or flippy yeah. out of the box. I mean, does that change the speed or like how, like I know we're not talking numbers, but what's your opinion? Like, yeah. Um, I don't think the plastic really changes speed. The plastic just changes 
grip. Yeah. That's kind of like a personal preference thing. And it also can change from run to run, like how overstable or understable this will be. The, the one thing that a lot of people don't understand and people wonder like, wait, why is the 2019 destroyer so different from the 2018 destroyer? It's, it's because it's humanly not possible to make the exact same blend of plastic two times in a row. Like you would think that's not a big deal, but I've heard so many times from the Latitude guys from Innova that it's just not possible. And just the slightest change will with the heat and the press will just tiny little changes here and there. Um, what was it? What was I going to say? The, the flight numbers can be helpful is one thing that I've noticed. Obviously, for people that are new to the game and are trying to understand, like in golf, the irons and woods and putters, like what, yeah. where are we at and how far will these discs go if thrown properly? But also, if when you talk about disc designing, and for example, you're trying to think of a new mold, you can go by the numbers, like what speed are we looking for? And it's just, I think, easy kind of to categorize on finding something new because of the thousands of discs out there, <laughs> I don't know how many copies of mm. the exact numbers different companies and the discs have, yeah. but... Um, yeah, I lost my train of thought, but no, just talking about the different runs. You know how it's humanly impossible to yeah. come out with the same so run. So would your stability. You, yeah. So would you recommend to me? I guess is where I was going with this. You're the pro. You throw really far. I appreciate Nick can throw half the distance you can. So I would rather ask Simon. Yeah. Um, would you? Because okay. you said, and you're not wrong. And I've, I think it's just such a mental thing. Again, I see it with my kid. Like I need to throw a higher speed disc, Dad. Like I need to. Like if I'm a better player. That's what I need to do. Does that equate at all? Or should I just be like, dude, my eagle or my T-bird throws 30 feet shorter than my destroyer. Would your recommendation be, dude, just throw that eagle or that T-bird? My recommendation, it's hard to say in general. Yeah. It really is a personal case-by-case -case thing. It depends what you as a player want. If you want to elevate your game, if you want to be a pro or if you just want to play for fun and get the most out of your shots, if you notice a noticeable difference between a 12-speed and a 10-speed, then I think you should totally use the 10-speed. Because the one, the number one thing in disc golf is having fun. Mm -hmm. And if throwing high-speed drivers is more fun for you than throwing a 10-speed driver or 9-speed or just mid-ranges and putters, then I, I think everyone should basically do whatever they want. But if they want to get better and if they want to work on form and if they want to understand the flight of discs and learn how to control the angles properly and add more distance to their later high-speed drivers then i'd recommend disking down figure out putters and mids maybe disc up to fairway drivers if needed and then uh, after a couple of weeks or maybe even a couple of months i think you will notice a big difference in your distance game hmm. Okay, so this is now live recording. Uh, we've got people in the chats going, how are you responding to the chats while the episode's playing out? So if you're confused watching live, just think how confused I am. So that was Simon talking high-speed drivers. Now, how many of you have, since that episode, if you've heard it, and if you haven't, think about this, gone out and played with um, a slower-speed disc or just throw your slower speed disc and throw your high speed driver and see the distance and footage. 
it seems to me like when I do this, I'll recognize maybe like 30 feet difference, maybe sometimes a little more. I haven't done it very recently to see the difference in the distance, but the times I had done it a few years ago, it was only about, like I said, 30 feet, 40 feet. Now, sometimes you need that extra distance for sure, but if you're in a controlled situation, you need to know that I don't need to lose my accuracy because I'm throwing a driver, like disc down for sure. Um, if you play often with me, you'll find out that I throw my comets a lot. Now, I have a very specific comet uh, blend that I throw. It's the limited editions. This was back, I don't know how many years ago now, 10 years ago, maybe. The limited edition ESP Comets. That's my favorite. That's really all I throw. I don't throw the Zs. I don't throw uh, anything else. That's it. And people just know that's what I throw. I can put that just about 300 feet through the woods on almost any line. Not quite Michael Johansson style, but I, oh, and by the way, I do have a autographed Michael Johansson limited edition ESP Comet. Literally one of the first, Michael Joe. Um, very cool. That's collected away. Um, and I have some of like the early like 2000 worlds when the comet was released. Uh, I have some of those in bags as well. So, but I throw the limited edition comet. My point with that is um, my rounds, you see the score get a lot better when I'm throwing something that's not high speed. Now, obviously, professional level comes when you can throw a high speed driver or again, a controlled driver, but far. So that's where you got to work on it. So that is really my thought on that. And, and going back to my comment in that snippet about my son Hunter throwing the Sonic, I do believe for juniors and let's just say new players in general, there's nothing wrong. And actually, I kind of advise it. Learn to throw what we would consider the most flippy disc ever. Try it. Try forehanding it and you say, oh, it turns into a roller. Try backhanding it. Oh, it turns into a roller. Well, figure out how to throw that flippiest disc you have as far as you can or controlled as you can without doing that. It's actually a fun challenge. It's like um, I've taken, you're going to laugh, but like paper plates or styrofoam bowls. Have you ever tried spinning those as a Frisbee? They just kind of flip right over. But I'm kind of determined to figure it out. And I figure if you don't do too much force on it and you spin it just right, you're going to get the most distance you can out of that paper plate or that bowl before it flips over. And so that's the control that you figure out how the disc flies. And so again, take a flippy disc and try to forehand it without turning it into a roller. It's touch. It's figuring out how discs flight. Um, so that was really Simon. That's at least what I took away from that, that the high speed drivers, he says it's all about fun and it is, but if you want to compete, figure out what works for you, the most control to distance. And obviously if you have a wide open shot, Maple Hill hole 11 um, or Maple Hill hole one for that matter. And, and you can just let something rip and the accuracy isn't as important. Well, then go for whatever you know is going to get the extra 20 or 30 feet for sure. Um, okay, we're going to go on to snippet number three. And this was one our special guest named Mr. I say Mr. <laughs> I just feel like that's seniority here. John Houck. Um, all Hall of Famer, professional course designer, all different disc sports, freestyle, um, as well as disc golf. And it used to be, used to be the commissioner of the PDGA. So this is John Houck. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him out on Nantucket Island a few years ago. 
The man is truly awesome to talk to. Loads of stories and history about the sport. John Houck, designer of many courses, a lot of high-rated courses. Uh, Sailor Ranch, um, also um, uh, Hillcrest up in PEI, Prince Edward Island. Incredible courses. Um, let's hear from him on his opinion on tee pads, and then I'll be right back to discuss um, my updated opinions on these tee pad discussion. What do you consider as a professional course designer to be a good tee pad? That's question one, and I'm going to let you talk a lot about this. So that's question one. What would be a good tee pad? And then two, when it comes to competition, do you think that there should be a regulation standard for tee pads. So first, what's a good tee pad? And then do you think there should be a regulation standard? Well, uh, as long as I've been in the sport, we've been looking for the perfect tee pad surface. Um, and in the last few years, you know, turf looks like maybe it's going to become a decent option. Uh, you know, we've experimented with rubber. Rubber has done great in Nantucket for all these years. Yeah. Um, but there's other places where rubber isn't working out so well. Um, I, I hear a lot of mixed reviews on turf. Some people love it. Some people hate it. So in my book, you know, concrete is still king. If you can get a nice flat concrete tee pad, um, you, have, you make sure, you know, there's no drop offs anywhere. So nobody's going to twist an ankle or anything. Um, and you make sure it has a rough enough surface. Um, and, uh, you know, not everybody's going to love concrete, <laughs> but I think um, all things considered, because, you know, turf, turf also um, uh, seems to come with maintenance issues, yes. right? Having to put the sand or whatever it is and, and replace it every once in a while. Not to say that concrete is perfect when it comes to maintenance issues, but um, I, I hope someday we'll, we'll find something where we clearly the best way to go, but you know, until, until that day, um, there are, there are good options out there, but I'm, I'm still a concrete guy, um, which <laughs> by the way, there's a longer story behind this, but the first time we discussed that with the representatives of the state of Massachusetts, um, about uh, the Nantucket course. Um, at a dinner where we had, you know, maybe half an hour of, of small talk. And then uh, our good friend Todd Rainwater said something like, so y'all are good with concrete, right? And I swear to God, some of them actually pushed back away from the table. But we don't like to discuss the scene. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so the funny, actually. <laughs> wow. Right. So, and you guys know, you know, pavers can be a good option, right? Yeah. You, yep. I mean, you, I you do have love them at Maple Hill. Pavers at Maple Hill. Right. So yeah. there, you know, if you if you do them right, I don't see why um, pavers can't be a good option too. If the so, yeah, um, you asked me yes, to make the, this a long the answer. No, yeah, no, the follow up is on the standard. Should there be a standard set for PDGA? I mean, a PDGA standard for T pad. Yeah, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> and I think I think there there are some already. If you if you look at the PDGA guidelines on you know. Uh, what you have to have before they'll even consider an A tier, an NT, or a or a major. There's some of that in there. Um, I <clears throat> personally um, prefer a tee that is wider in the back for people who come in at an angle. 
Um, I saw Nico doing some of that recently, you know, a lot of shots where where he was starting off the tee box. Um, not not that it, there was any problems. This was at the preserve, I think, because, yep. you know, there was good grass, good level grass all the way around. But some people like to come in at an angle, so I like to, you know, widen it out as long as the front of the tee is wide enough, make it a little wider in the back. Um, and on a championship course, we, uh, on the long tees, always have a minimum of 12. Um, some places like Harmony Bends are 15. Um, I think Agape, which is the course uh, that should open in Pennsylvania later this year, I think they're going to be 15. And, you know, some people, you, you, 30 feet wouldn't be long enough. But, you know, yeah, no players, kidding, right? players yeah. appreciate. Who comes to mind? Who James, comes to mind? James Conrad. <laughs> James Conrad. Wow. That snippet was awesome. John Houck talking his opinion on a standard for tee pads. Now, have you thought about this before? Does it matter for your local disc golf park to have a standard? No. But what about competition? I mean, what if you were to play basketball and all the basketball hoop heights were different, the courts were smaller, or soccer, the goals were smaller, or um, whatever you may be used to in a sport changed at every competition. Now, it could be argued that that's part of the sport and the fun. And I guess in some ways... I could buy into that, but it's, it seems to me that if there's a standard, well, actually that's a whole nother discussion. There is a standard for baskets. Um, and, and John alluded to the idea that there is wording in the PDGA competition manual to say that T pads need to be to a certain standard, but I'm going to tell you that standard's pretty vague. Um, I believe it's just more or less that it can't be natural. Um, but the size and all that, it would be nice to say competition needs to have at least a minimum of, and to define that out. Now, what the material is, they could say that, you know, concrete's available, pavers and turf, um, maybe fly pads, but that's where it's hard, right? I mean, they start saying that all these tee pads are acceptable and really, are they all acceptable? Uh, what's the worst tee pads you've ever played on? Um, <laughs> for me is probably a piece of wet plywood or something. Um, or just again, uneven terrain as a natural tee pad. Now, can I have fun at all of those? Yes. This is not to discuss should courses be removed or all that. This is purely speaking competition at the elite level. Um, and as far as baskets go, I know it's getting off a little topic here, but if you go listen to the John Houck episode, we talk about baskets and it often gets brought up in all conversations about baskets, should baskets be made smaller, harder to hit putts on? Um, my take on this is not well-refined, but I honestly don't think the basket size is our answer. I kind of think, and I've said this before, the game of bowling, a good score is whatever, uh, 200 and something, all right? Um, and then you go over and play what I grew up playing as bowling, which is called candle pin bowling. And when you play candle pin bowling, your score is way lower. A good score in candle pin bowling is like anything over a hundred. Okay. Now, if you compare those, you feel like one is way harder than the other, but the reality is the game is different. It appears the same, but it's different. So where I'm going with this is that changing the basket size may change the par on a course or, or the way it plays harder 
but does that make it better? Or can we just say that disc golf, this is what you do. You want to shoot 10, 13, 16 under par, 18 under par. That's like what you want to do. That's that's the difference between our sport of disc golf and golf. I'm okay with par being farther under. Um, to say make putting harder, I think if you really want to do that, why not change the stat on what is considered putting? Let's say, for instance, a putt now circle one is now 60 feet and circle two is now 90 feet then all of a sudden you're going to see putting it harder. Standstills from uh, outside of 60 being circle one, it's going to make putting harder. Um, I think that would be a better way to do it. Just change up your stats if that's really what matters to you. Don't change the basket size because the ripple effect across courses everywhere and competitions everywhere is way too large to change up the basket size. And you could say, well, just change out the baskets for the tournament. But then how are you practicing on these baskets? I think that's just a much much um, more difficult situation to do than uh, the the other the option that I just listed out. Let me know what you think in the comments. Um, let me know what you think on that. And let's go ahead and move on to Eagle McMahon. We had him on a few episodes ago. His internet connection was horrible, <laughs> which is okay. We're glad to have him on. And we we had a good time talking and learning about his game and and more about him as a person. That's one thing we like to do in our interviews, help our perspective be shift about an individual by learning something about them um, and their person. So let's talk about, or let, let Eagle talk about here. He talks about what it takes now to become a professional. And then, he, and then I ask him a follow-up question on his recent win at Idlewild. Um, what does family means to him? And so this is the discussion there. Yeah, and the, one thing I'll add to that, it's, it's cool that there's starting to be a formula for it too. Uh, mm-hmm. I know I when I started out, it was kind of like a, a shot in the dark. You were just watching random clinic videos. There wasn't a lot of information about touring, but now you can kind of see what a lot of people do when they're off time, what you need to be doing to push yourself. So I, I think the way disc golf is growing and the way it's being perceived to the greater audience is uh, a lot more positive than it may have used to been true agreed oh 100 true um let me ask you this one more question before we move into judge that disc golfer and can i say this how has your family and i was there when you won Idlewild, okay and a phone call to your dad and then um i guess we can say we were lucky enough that you had it on speakerphone and let us let us share in that moment and actually uh, a bunch of the disc golf world, okay, sharing that moment with you um, when you realize that you won. Can I ask, how has your family influenced your disc golf success? I, hugely. Uh, I don't have the biggest immediate family. Uh, my mom died when I was nine years old, believe it or not, like the almost a few weeks after I got into disc golf, I don't even think she knew I even played disc golf, which is uh, crazy. Um, so my dad has been one of the biggest influences in my career, and I can I can accredit almost all my accept, my success to him, uh, taking me out to play, paying for my tournaments, and you know, all in all, teaching me the proper etiquette, a lot of mindset out on the course. So. Uh, he's, he's really a part of the team. Um, my grand, my grandparents as well. Uh, they always were very supportive of it. My grandma always took me out to the field. 
watched me throw, gathered discs, took me to the local play against sports, uh, you know, used my monthly allowance on discs. So um, really they're, they're, they're my support system and I, I couldn't do without them. So whenever, whenever I win, I feel like uh, they feel like they win too. So it's uh, it's, it's really special to have them behind me. That's awesome. Wow. Um, I'm just going to take this moment to say I, for one, as a fan of the sport, did not know that about your mother. And to, when the words came out of your mouth that you're not even sure that she knew you played disc golf, I don't know why, but that just that struck me as an emotional situation. And I know there's people who are listening and following right now who are saying they didn't know. And I don't know if that will inspire others, but um <sighs> People will often say they play for somebody or situations. Um, have you ever done that for your mom, or do you try to keep that separate? You know, it's it's really interesting to to think about. I, I I'm sure I have played uh, for her in some ways. Uh, you know, one thing that's kind of special is like the beaver state fling is usually the same weekend that she passed away and it always feels like uh there's some you know there's some ominous sense out there i don't know uh but you know there's definitely times i think of uh how she might be influencing my game or things along those lines uh but most of the time i'd say it's somewhat separate but you know it's it's kind of hard to, it's kind of a hard thing to to think about uh, i've of course i miss her but i feel like i've i've done a, a good job because you know disc golf came at a time where it it was almost like a coping a coping mechanism and it almost took on that like motherly role as crazy as that sounds you know mm -hmm. so there's there's a there's a lot to to go over there and i'm not sure we have time and I don't know if I have the words at the moment, yeah. but you know, there, there's, there's something special, uh, with my mom and, and this golf that's linked. Wow. Thank you. Oh, for, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's uh, tremendous. I feel like a lot of people, I mean, you have a lot of fans and I'm sure some of them knew that story, but some of them didn't. I'm sure you're gaining more fans just from the wow Eagle. Congratulations. Keep on keeping on. Wow. So here I am back live again in studio. And I would like to say when Eagle, first of all, I'm just going to give you a behind the scenes here. I had zero knowledge, at least I, I, unless it was subliminal, I had zero knowledge of the situation with Eagle's mom when dying, when he was nine years old. When I heard that immediately, I became emotional internally um, and just in that moment, hearing Eagle say that I wasn't quite sure how to respond. And that question that I responded with was like, it felt almost inappropriate. Like, Hey, have you ever played for your mom? Like, that's a personal thing, like very personal. And like, I just, in that moment, wasn't sure how to acknowledge that that was sensitive for everybody to hear, but truly appreciated that he shared it. And one of the great things that Eagle said in that was like disc golf played like a motherly role to him. I mean, how much does that make him a human to everybody? Like, wow, he's not, you know, some super being, if you, well, maybe he's a super being like, he's really good at disc golf. 
But as far as like, it just made you relate to him that everybody has things in their life and it made him more relatable. Um, so we've even had people in our comments in that episode, go find that episode with Eagle actually say that like they related in a very similar way. And now like, wow, I feel like I'm connected to you more Eagle. Like I didn't really like you before as a disc golfer, but now I do. So that is my takeaway there. That's really special. These disc golfers are real people dealing with real things. Um, the other thing that that I noticed with Eagle real quick was when he said that he didn't know if his mom even knew that he picked up disc golf. How crazy is that? So that's an episode you'd like to go back and listen to. If you can get past the internet or if you're listening on the podcast, you don't have to watch how bad his video uh, was coming through. But that was really a special episode. So this next one up is going to be with, we just had it actually. This is going to seem a little crazy, but if you're brand new to us, it's okay. We're going to go back to the episode with Nate Sexton and it's only a two and a half minute clip. But I wanted to share this with you because um, I thought we thought it was interesting what he said during that episode. So here we go. Kind of like goals as a competitor. Is there a specific tournament you want to win or do you want to reach a certain milestone? Like, because you, yeah. you've said before, I think kind of openly where, you know, you you and Paul were different when it came to kind of the McBeast challenges and everything. Like Paul was always the competitor who wanted to win every single tournament. Nate, you were kind of like, hey, throw me in the top five every single time and I'm beyond content. Like that's a good weekend for you. But you've also had some major wins with Ledgestone, USDGC, and a bunch of others. Like, you know, you're still top probably seven or eight highest rated players in the world. Is there a certain tournament out there that you want to win or what are what are your end game goals as a player um you know i think i obviously sure world championships would be fantastic mm -hmm. but i think i might even rather win the usdgc again if i if i could have one to pick but also more immediately i want to win the kits up classic that starts tomorrow that's oh. an a tier and i'm coming back so gotcha. we so, had a we yeah, had a live asked comment about that. There. they're like yeah. ask him what he's playing so yeah but so yeah, kids have classic tomorrow. Man. It feels weird to say, yeah. but yeah, I'm playing wow. in an A tier about an hour from here. So nice. the, uh, Nick asked earlier, like you sitting out, like you must be itching to compete as often as you feel comfortable. Um, are there besides that tournament tomorrow? Is there any chance, uh, uh, percentage wise, that you would hit the US DGC this year? One hundred percent. That you will. Yeah, I'm going. Oh, nice. Awesome. I don't know. Exclusive yeah, I, news. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I haven't I haven't bought my tickets yet. But yeah, like, you know, I went to, I feel like I'm trying to be safe, mm -hmm. but obviously going to Kansas and doing DDO was calculated risk. And I'm taking another calculated risk in that I will be going to the USDGC and I'll just be solo in my hotel room and solo in my rental car and, you know, just trying to wear my mask when I, when I can. Yep. And, you know, I'll be seeing friends, but outside and trying to keep social distancing uh, as a major part of what I'm doing. Exactly. Is there any coverage for the tournament that you're playing this weekend? Any no local news or camera crews? There's a guy. Yeah. I think it's called John Brown TV. Okay. He, I haven't met him yet, but actually I'm going to do commentary. He just uh, nice. contracted me to do the commentary uh, with my buddy Chandler Fry. So oh, I love Chandler. We'll see. He's it's, a, it's, a, it's a ball golf course, nice. ball golf course layout, two, two rounds of 27 and one round of 18. Gotcha. Uh, over the next three I was days. Say, Friday, Saturday, actually, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, nice. and then the very next weekend, I have another A tier, thirty minutes from here for the Washington State Championship. So, so you're just getting prepped. It feels like it's been forever since I played, yeah. but yeah, now I got back to back A tiers. I'm hoping I still remember how to do yeah, it. Yeah, no kidding. 
Okay, so here I am live. I was actually just doing a quick re, uh, quick check here. Um, interesting. So Nate actually said last weekend he was playing in the Kiss Up Classic, a local A tier to him. I think it was a couple hours away. And that is what he just talked about. And I was like, hey, I'm going to go look this up. And so I just went and looked it up. If you are interested, I don't want to give a spoiler here, but that was last week. So guess what place he got? You might think first. He took second place. And his rating, his current rating, is 1,038. He shot above his rating two rounds. One round he shot 1,020. The other two is 1,043 and 1,057. So not bad shooting, but the player who won, I don't think I've ever heard this name before, is it's Dalen or Dallin Blanchard and shot four strokes better than Nate and is rated 1,039. So one point better than Nate and beat him out. It only makes sense according to ratings if they're that accurate. Um, but wow. Okay. It just shows it. You just, you're not going to win every single event. Um, if you're a touring professional, even in your local area, um, obviously one, one person can win at each event. But the thing that stood out to me the most about that snippet specifically is one that he said he's playing the USDGC. That is again, behind the scenes, if you will, we didn't have a clue. And that literally came across to us as an exclusive. And in the moment, that wasn't even a question in our show notes. I just felt like in that moment, I just wanted to say, like, what are the chances you play? I was going to say any event. And literally, as I was speaking, USDGC came out of my mouth. And he's like, yeah, 100%. And I was so taken back. That's why I said, wait, that you are doing it? Because I was expecting like, no, like he's going to say no, the chances are no. The other thing that stood out in that snippet, let me know what you think, comment, whatever, um, in your car driving or however you listen to us. Think about this. Would you rather win a world championship or the United States title? And if you choose the United States title, why do you choose the United States title? This is what Nate Sexton did. Now, that's another one that I wish in the moment I would have followed up. I really wish I would have. Um, I have to believe that his answer would be a lot related to the prestigeness, prestigiousness of it, um, where they often, touring players say that that is the most prestigious event. And to have an American United States title, a United States champion, I don't care what sport it is, to be the champion for that title that's pretty cool, right? World champion is like the whole world, but maybe to, I mean, I guess I can see it to Nate and to others. It could be, this is my home country. I am representing the United States of America as a champion in that way. That's epic. Um, I think a world title, maybe at the Olympics, maybe if disc golf ever gets there, I don't, that's a whole nother topic. Do we want it there? Is it going to thrive there? How to get it there? But those two things stood out. If you didn't listen to that episode with Nate last week, go check out the whole thing. We did multiple cool segments, but he also gave us some insight that before he putts, sometimes on big putts, he thinks of his daughter and says, for Coraline. And um, so interesting segment there. Nate is truly an awesome guy. All right. The next uh, snippet that we have from an episode two ago, uh, Disc Golf Strong's owner, CEO, trainer, however you want to think of him, Seth Muncy, 
came on the show and he is a personal trainer and athletic trainer. He graduated with degrees I'll never have in uh, human body science and athletic science or sports science. And um, the guy is truly awesome and knowledgeable and wants to help disc golf's perspective change. This came up during the episode and I kind of throw it at Nick. You'll see here in just a minute. I throw it at Nick and I say, Nick, why do you have to look at your game right now in such a harsh way? Like, have fun with it. This is just the current state of your game. You're not 1,050 rated yet. Um, and so this is his perspective on how to be in the moment and understand that disc golf is a process. So this one's about eight and a half minutes long, but this is good content. File this away. This is something you want to take with you for your disc golf game for sure. Here it comes. In disc golf, and it seems to be the case, if you're not first place at an event, you kind of failed is how it's mm -hmm. observed. I've failed. Now, people who are people who are working hard with whether it's your program or they're just physically working hard with another guy or another program or themselves, how do you convince them that like, listen, you're not failing. It's not that what you're doing is failing. This is still important no matter how you place. Mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. it's a process right it's a process it's not a switch that gets turned on and now you're just going to start winning every event so how do you communicate this no. to people it is it that five minutes a day is that what we're talking about it's it's just keep doing it you're going to get better don't worry about the placement at an event it's a process yeah yeah you got to focus on the process absolutely you know that we are so outcome driven because that's you know we that's how we tend to uh, place ourselves against other competitors and, and inside the sport, we think about the outcome, but that's not what we want to focus on. We want to focus on what are the things that I'm doing to get better and let everything else take care of itself. Um, you know, there's a great book called Mind Gym, An Athlete's Guide to Inner Excellence. And in there, he talks about, uh, this baseball player, professional baseball player that went to Japan for a little while and, and played there. And when this baseball player came back to the United States, uh, he said in, in, in the Japan, they have a saying that in the United States, they play baseball in Japan. We work baseball, mm. right? So it's showing up every, if you're, let's say you're a pro every day. Okay. Let's just even make it, you know, Monday through Friday. What am I doing today to get better? What are the small little things that I'm focusing on, right? Because that's how we get better is I'm working disc golf. Let's say you're like, well, I'm not a pro, but I just, you know, I'm an am and I do want to get better. Okay, what are little things through the week that I can work disc golf to get better outside of just playing around? Because that's how you get the confidence. That's how you work on what uh, the process is. Because you just, you know, as long as you've worked on that stuff, you've worked on that, that process, the results, the outcome, you let that take care of it, take care of itself because we get so outcome focused and that's not how most people, uh, you know, succeed in life. They, the, the, the top people, they just show up, they put in the work consistently and they let the results speak for themselves. And then they self-reflect. They go, okay, I didn't do, I, you know, my level of performance, my standings was not what I, you know, what it turned out to be. What do I got to do to get better? Like, you know, win or, win or learn. 
Tory Hunter um, from baseball. Mm-hmm. He once said that uh, he once say, stated that uh, you know he if you in baseball if you are batting three hundred, right? That means that seventy percent of the time you're getting an out, right? So only thirty percent of the time he goes that's an F. Where if you're if you bat three hundred, you're basically like an F you know, yeah. performing as an F as a hitter. Yeah. Right. But if you, if you bat at 300, if you you hit, you uh, make contact, get on base 30% of the time. And you do that over the course of a, you know, your career, you're a hall of fame. Yeah. You're getting paid. Right. Millions. So <laughs> yeah, that's what we have. That's what they think about. If you, if you are batting in a game and you strike out three times, you get up the plate fourth time bases are loaded. You can't be thinking like, Oh, what do people think of me? Like, Oh man, I already struck out three times. Like you gotta be thinking like I'm here. Like yeah. I've put in the work and my goal, my, you know, I just need to hit ball to bat, yeah. you know, or bat to ball. Right. That's what you got to focus on. Um, but we don't focus on that much in disc golf. It's more, where am I standing? Yep. So what am I doing? Right. Mm-hmm. But, and I know I, I you know, I kind of be lengthy with my answers, but I want to make sure I hit hit certain points here, and you know, because that kind of all melts together. Yeah. Going back to the athlete identity as an athlete, you have to be comfortable with your whatever ceiling you set as an athlete. Okay, so if you first determine your acceptable level of ceiling, and you say, "Hey, my acceptable level of ceiling is." I go out on tour, I finish middle of the pack, but I have an amazing time. I, you know, really get to experience tour life. There's nothing wrong with that. But if your acceptable level of ceiling, ceiling level is you want to be top 10, but yet on tour, you're spending most of your time out enjoying yourself and you're not, you know, out there grinding, working disc golf, you're going to get disappointed because the results aren't going to be there. Yeah. And that's not just on tour. That's it. So my, my, uh, one of my mentors in strength conditioning, he's trained Olympians and throw He's a big throwing athlete, mm. trained high school and college. He told me one time, he said, he tells his college throwers and his high school throwers, like when they get upset after a performance, they go, Hey, you're not good enough to be disappointed. <laughs> All right. I love that. So he's like, he's like, you're not good enough. If this is, if you're an Olympian and you're going for the gold and you don't get it and you put Damn. in years and years of work be disappointed but if you're a high school athlete you're a college athlete and you got full-time school and you got this and you got that and you're chasing you know girls or guys and you know and you're not winning wow don't be disappointed say hey this is this is where i'm at like you know and and it, it helps with it helps with getting rid of that that outcome focus because you go hey i this is where yeah, I have to put Nick on the spot. No, but is this is this resonating with Nick Whoa. at all? So he's obviously so, aspiring, like he's yeah. aspiring. But I, I play with him, but and I'm just going to call you out. He gets really frustrated with his gameplay, and that's because I yeah. think he has this expectation. But your coaching right now would be to say, "This is where you are. Kind yeah. of accept that, and what's your next step to get better?" And I, I'll kind of hit on both of what. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll hit on what both Seth said and what you said, Matt. Is you know, I obviously I get frustrated with myself because I know how I have played. Mm. And what frustrates me is more is like, hey, last year at this tournament, 
You know, I averaged 1010 and this year I averaged 980. Like, how did I get worse in a year? And so I guess kind of, you know, what Seth was saying, and I'm not making an excuse out of this at all because I'm really not. <laughs> but like, you know, I'm not out, you know, at a dorm right now or anything. I, you know, I live at home, but I work full time. And as the weather gets nicer for disc golf, I actually play less disc golf because mm. I work in a part of construction to where the second that, you know, the sun comes up, I've already been working for three hours usually. When the sun starts going down, mm -hmm. I'm usually sometimes just getting getting home from work, depending on how long the blasting site is going on for. So it's, yeah, you know, I don't get to play as much as I'd like to. And then, you know, I, it's 830 at night at this point. I try to go to the gym. I do a quick hour workout and it's like, but now, to now Seth's it's point, 930 Yeah, But night. to Seth's point, and I don't know if this helps Nick at all, but to Seth's point, that's where you are right now. You yeah. are, you're recognizing those things. You're recognizing so, I have work, I have other obligations, all these yeah. things. Like, how can you be mad or frustrated at yourself for playing that way when that is your obligations? Now, yeah. that's not to say if you're I'm like, quitting my job. I was going to say, <laughs> well, I was going to say, if you have steps to be like, hey, yeah. I really want to get out there, thousand mm -hmm. plus rated, whatever, I think there would be, have to be some shifts and changes. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing Seth say, at least. Like, take where you are. And if you yeah. want to get better, what are those steps? So I'm back live in studio again. That was a snippet from our episode with Seth Muncy. Go check that out. What an incredible show that was. In fact, he may not be the highest profile guest we've ever had, but leaving that episode with Seth felt the most inspiring to my being as a human as well as a disc golfer and seth if you happen to be listening to this portion of the show thank you so much one of the takeaways from that snippet was you're not good enough to be disappointed and that really resonated with me it's like you throw a shot and you get upset and it's like well maybe that's just the revelation of your game right now don't be disappointed with that unless you've put in, as Seth said, you're, you're in the Olympics working as hard as you can every day, every moment. But in a situation where that's not available to you, your disc golf game is a revelation to where you're at right now. If you don't like it, work, set up your steps, figure it out, change something, have a plan. And for Nick, I called him out. Nick's not here in person with me. He actually, I'm sure, kind of appreciated it. We have a great relationship. I introduced Nick to disc golf uh, nine years ago, eight years ago. I literally, first time ever, said, Nick, you got to check this out. And I introduced him and watched him get better and better and better till he's beating me on the regular. And now, honestly, if he's playing his best game, I don't stand a chance right now. And that's me accepting where I'm at. I'm a competitor. And do I like that? No. But I don't have the investment for time. I have... Uh, four kids who do like disc golf, but I'm often doing it with them and not able to practice and work out. And I have a wife and a, a job and it's just where I'm at and I'm enjoying the sport. But Nick is really starting to really do well with it. And I, I'm interested to see, Nick, if you're listening to the show later, I'm interested to see where Nick goes with the game. Today, again, potential to shoot, you know, a thousand thirty rated round or so kind of faltered a little bit at the end, but held on to get a minus two round. That's pretty good thousand rated golf i mean he's not a joke um so that was my takeaway from seth uh, right before that little snippet i shared with you he said it's like playing the guitar if you play the guitar solid for a month hardcore you're gonna learn something right 
but and then you stop for the rest of the year. Which would do better for you? Five minutes a day over the course of a year or like all day for a month? If you continue at five minutes a day for a year, I have you have to believe it's going to sink in more. It's going to settle more. You're going to become better. And if you did that throughout your life, consistently small portions, you're going to do better. So what's your regimen for getting better at disc golf? Is it just to go out and have practice rounds out on the course? Or are you actually taking things and refining them and working on them little bits each day, trying to figure out and change your game? For me, one time I changed up my throwing grip. I went from some type of like one finger, two finger. This was a long time ago, two finger kind of grip um, where I thought I was throwing great. But that was probably one of the biggest shifts in my game ever was when I went to a power grip for most of my drives. It felt so incredibly awkward, but I knew it was going to be better for my game in the distance realm. And I started changing it. And with time, a little bit each day, it starts to feel normal. In fact, if I went back to throw the way I used to, it's going to feel super weird. Um, so small changes can sometimes feel huge, but continuing with them, um, and recognizing where your game is at. Thank you, Seth, so much for that. We've got two more snippets totaling about eight minutes each. So the show's coming down towards the end here, but this was one of our earlier snippets here from our episode with Matt Kruger of Udisc. This is where the whole argument and debate started from me about which is easier, which is harder disc golf or golf. Now people called me crazy. My brother said, ooh, I can argue that. I've heard through the rumor mill that Brody Smith wants to have some airtime with me to tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> That's not quite how he put it. I'm just, I'm not putting words out there. But I've heard that like, there's a lot of people who disagree. And I still feel like if I'm given the opportunity to share my insight, that I don't think you can specify which one is harder. Because if you can't top out in a sport, then aren't they equally hard? Or is it just that, no, you can get further in disc golf quicker, so that means it's easier. It depends. If I'm being very clear in what my opinion is here, I'm saying that it's equally as hard to get to that professional Paul Macbeth level or better. Um, and, and those of you who haven't done that don't really have, I mean, you can start to talk and compare, and that's half the fun of it. But the reality is, I mean, I'm not talking and you can go listen to that episode. I don't need to rehash it out. I'm not saying that the competition is as hard because right now in disc golf, competition is way easier. It's starting to get harder with more players fighting for the top. But as far as golf is concerned, I mean, we're talking the elite of the elite of the elite. So the competition is way harder. But I'm actually talking about the skill it takes. Some might argue that like it's harder because you got a stick in your hands or a, a disc in your hand where you can just throw or stick to hit a ball. Like that's harder, obviously. But then I go, which one is harder to throw further or to get further? It's harder to get the disc further. And the ball, it's easy. Even if I shank it, it's going how far? 300, 400 feet. Um, when I shank a disc, how far does it go? 30 or 40 feet. I mean, it's relative, but the point is like, Anyways, go listen to that segment if you want a good time on <laughs> the difficulty golf versus disc golf. But this segment here talks about the human brain. And um, this was from the segment with Matt Kruger. Here it comes. The players who started golf a long time ago, imagine if they looked at the golfers today. Do you think they would say the game was harder back then or today? Well, that's the same thing disc golfers say. The game was harder back when Ken Climo and Barry Schultz were winning everything than it is now that Paul, Ricky, and Eagle and those players are winning everything because the technology advances. So 
yeah, old timers are obviously going to say that it's easier nowadays, but at the same time, they all have the respect level as in like what the top players in the world and the top distance players and everything like that, what they're doing is incredible in and of itself. But there is, yeah, there's a case where you could say it's easier because of our technology, but at the same time, our, when technology grew in disc golf and golf, the courses also got bigger. So mm -hmm. courses that, you know, players were playing back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s for disc golf when discs did, you know, they were kind of like cheap plastic. You flipped them up, they turned to the right. No one really had a forehand, anything like that. You know, their holes were 200 to 300 feet, I feel like. Like you could go back and look at worlds and they shoot negative 90 over seven, eight rounds or something like that. So it's insane. I don't know. And then you look at courses now like Northwoods Golds, where if you're a couple under par, like you did an incredible thing. And I love that. I think that's the best way to compare disc golf to golf is like, yeah. we have courses where Fountain Hills, you go and shoot 17 down and that puts you on lead card. But, but that just means, and <laughs> we can go on forever. I'll argue this point, but that just means that par is easier. That doesn't mean it's easier to throw the disc and do what you did. That just means par was easier. So if we're, again, if we're yeah. saying is the competition easier, I'll give you that disc golf competition is way easier because there's not as many people at a high level that yep. will change eventually. If you say, is it easier to shoot under par in disc golf? I will give you that a hundred percent. It's way easier. I do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I don't know that I can actually say that the actual physics, I, I, well, I'll so give you this I, as I'll, well. I'll, I'll give you that, this yeah. as well. The ramp up is way faster. So yeah. in a sense, it's easier to get into and to ramp up. But when we start getting into that, I'm just going to say thousand rated plus, is it actually easier to refine at the smallest detail of how I hold my thumb, the angle, the spin, the thoughts about the wind in your backswing, just all of it together? I feel like the human brain is doing just as much, if not more, than golf at the same time. I don't know. I think so. One of the things, you know, Matt was talking about earlier was the margin for error in golf is a lot higher than it is in disc golf. Like, he was saying, if you mess up your drive, if you duff the ball in golf and you go 30 yards off the tee, you can't throw your driver again. In disc golf, sometimes if you mess your shot up, you can usually throw your driver again. You can run up to it. In golf, you don't put another tee in the ground, and so you lose however much distance just off of that. Mm -hmm. To par everything in disc golf is a thousand times. It, it's easier to uh, – what's the U-disc? Um, bounce back. The bounce back stat. Oh, yeah. Is bounce that what it is? Yeah. yeah. It's easier to have a, a higher bounce back stat in disc golf than it is golf. I think by a thousand percent. So <laughs> Nick is making his point, and I think he would probably fall on the side. He's pretty neutral in this conversation, but I think he would fall on the side that golf is harder. And for the reasons that he was stating, and I just realized in that snippet, we didn't really um, have Matt talking much in that three minute section. But if you go listen to the whole show, Matt makes a voice and his opinion shared that he believes wholeheartedly that golf is harder. Um, and I think for him, maybe that's the case. And that's the interesting part here. Um, when we ask that question, are we saying across the general population of people or for each person? Because um, golf is going to be way easier 
and I and I don't mean any offense to this, but for in the older generation, the senior citizens, golf would be way easier. You just you can swing a club at your own speed and the ball can still travel a good distance. They're not going to be able to get out and do a lot of this hiking or throwing athletic motion. So, I mean, if for individuals, it's going to be different. And in fact, in the chat room here, um, this is. By the way, I didn't shout it out. This is live again recording, not a pre-recorded snippet. Um, is that they're saying, you know, it's like saying which is harder, football or baseball. And I think, can you determine that? And you might say, well, not between those two, but between um, darts and football. I mean, can you determine that? And I mean, some people are going to say for sure the amount of time that goes into one over the other. But like at the highest level. Is anybody ever topping out? And again, that's that's kind of my take is that you can't determine it. And um, so if you can for yourself and you determine one is easier, then go do it and slay it. Um, and that's all I would say about that. I think it's just a topic that's fun to have. Um, that was a great episode with Matt from UDIS. So our last and final snippet here was from the Dave Feldberg episode where Dave comes on and he's got a lot of cool opinions on things and he runs the um, amateur disc golf uh, national tour or the amateur national disc golf tour, sorry. Um, and he comes up and he's giving his insight. He's, he's a world champion. He's giving his insight on what to do with what we call the tournament jitters, if you will, how to play through those or how to handle those. And I thought his insight here and our discussion surrounding it um, was something that you guys might like to take away. It's fairly helpful for me. And um, I think you guys will receive some benefit as well. So here's Dave Felberg episode snippet. So here's, here's a few quick tips for everybody. Apparently, chewing gum. Now, don't leave it on the tea pad <laughs> but chew, or on the park benches, but chewing gum, apparently there's a study out there that showed that it relieves stress in you. And they, they evaluated these people before, during, and after chewing gum, and they, they experienced that it was a stress reliever. Um, so, you know why? Go ahead. Do you know why? Well, I'm assuming it's because when you're eating, this is, okay, I, I have inside scoop for my reasoning. When you're eating... Your body does not feel like it's threatened or in danger, which is where your anxiety comes from. The, the idea of like fight or flight, right? And so your nerves are saying, hey, something bad is about to happen here and I need to run away. And so if you're eating, your body automatically assumes or if you're chewing that chewing motion, hey, you're, you're fine. That's, that's what I found. What, what do you got? That's a good point. But I'd have to say it's because when you get nervous, what happens to your mouth? Mm. You're you, talking about you like get... dry or? You chewy. The more nervous your jaw starts to shake, you start to get that. So yep. if you're chewing it and the tension is then released, then it releases that nervous feeling. That would be my guess. I'm not saying I know, but that no. would be my guess. And, I, and, I feel like we're about to see a lot more people hopefully start chewing gum. <laughs> we got to come up with like they have the big league chew. Yeah. We should come up with like the pro tour chew. We should have just spring. Not, not to interrupt you, but number one thing the pros used to say on tour, don't eat before you play. Mm. Play really? hungry because the fight or flight that he just mentioned. Hmm. Interesting. And so, yeah, that's a whole nother topic. But so take deep breaths. Nick said that taking yeah. deep breaths, I think, is really important because, again, and I'll just put it out there for the world to know, I do have a therapist that I talk to regularly. It's awesome. And one of the things that she talked to me about was when you take these deep breaths, it goes right back to what I said about chewing gum. If you take deep breaths, um, your body, and I'm talking deep, like breathe in. Hold it for like five seconds, three seconds, and then breathe out real slow and do that for a couple times. 
again, your body, your physiological effect of that fight or flight, that that's what anxiety is in you, the nerves that you're feeling all these jitters. It takes it away because it goes, you can't actually be threatened because you're so calm and breathing slow. And so it okay. starts to tell your brain, no, you're wrong. And so that's where Nick said, and this is with Sarah Hokum's point to him, if you can do these slow, deep breaths before, your body is going to be able to come to a different place. Uh, how about this one? Have you ever used this, Dave? Visualize success. Visualize literally, <laughs> take a moment to visualize yourself succeeding and doing it exactly the right way. Is that work for you? You're going to think I'm cocky or whatever, but it, this is where I'm saying people misread it. You can't really speak your mind when you're at the top without people thinking you're <laughs> yeah. egotistical instead of confident. But let me tell you, that the secret, that Oprah stuff that she put out, I kind of tapped into that when I was reading the golf books back then. And that visualization of you winning is as real as it ever gets. And I'll tell you, I used to be on the airplane. I won't say with who, but I would be flying out to a tournament. And then because of that book, I wrote my speech, my winning speech. <laughs> Right. And I'd say it out loud to the people I'm with and they'd be like, shut up, whatever. And all week leading up to it and all week during practice, I'm like, I'm here to win. You know, I'm going to win. I'm here to win. I'm going to win the tournament. I'm supposed to win. So a lot of people are like, he's so cocky. He's so cocky. Right. But that's what it told me to mentally believe. And once that was, it was my destiny. I believed I was supposed to win. And somehow half the time players would just miss a 20 footer on the last hole and I'd win. You know, it was just the weirdest things. I was supposed to win. Yeah. And I, once I believed that, I started to win. And then I would show him on the airplane afterwards. Look, remember when I wrote this speech on the way here, <laughs> you know, and yeah. they'd be like, that's stupid. It doesn't make sense. And I'm like, no, it does. You control your own destiny. It's your reality and you control it. The, there was a local disc golfer to me here. And I'm just elaborating on what you said, because I think it's so important that I remember playing leagues. I don't know, six, seven years ago. And I was like, how are you not missing your putts? You're literally not missing any putts. And it was starting, like, I was happy for him, but it was driving me crazy because I was competing against him. And he literally told me, and I felt like it was cocky, just like you said. He goes, literally, I know I'm not going to miss the putt. Like, I know it. I'm, I'm going to hit the putt. It's not even a question. And I felt like it was the cockiest thing ever, but he just kept doing it and kept doing it. And I think there's something to this. Well, hey, one thing I want to say, you talked about the, all in the beginning things that upset people. There's an example if you believe in that visual thing, the person who, when he does miss a putt, he's not going to say if he's a good visualizer and knows how to be a winner, he's not going to say, Oh, I missed it. God, I was off. He's going to say, man, that it slipped out of my hand. My footing was off. My putter didn't feel right. Yeah. The squirrel behind me jumped. So people would think he's complaining, but he's telling himself, no, you didn't make any mistakes. Mm -hmm. You can still make it. So when he goes to the next hole, he doesn't adjust. He just does what he was doing on the first seven holes, not the eighth hole, and makes it again. You're right. So the guy who says it's his, the guy who says it's his fault, he's done the rest of the round. He can't find his putt anymore, right? But <laughs> the guy who acts like that's considered cocky, but he's actually doing what is needed to get the best out of his own performance. Gotcha. That does okay. So yeah. that's perfect. And I'm gonna. I your perspective was amazing there because I'm not gonna lie. It bothers me to no end when somebody makes an excuse for a poor throw. Like, oh, if this or that, or I didn't slip here, or that kid didn't say something over there. Or, like, it bothers me because I'm like, no, dude, you just didn't throw it right. Mm -hmm. But to your point, that's, that's, I guess there's a competition mindset there too to be like, hey, I need to remind myself that I can do this the right way and that wasn't my fault. It, that's an interesting perspective. Okay, so this is me back live in studio. And that perspective that Dave Felberg just offered, 
is still one that kind of leaves me a little feeling weird in the moment. It was great to hear the perspective. But in hindsight, thinking about it more, it still kind of bothers me when somebody blames the issue of their game on something outside of their control. Um, part of it feels like you need to go to Seth Muncie where he goes, hey, it's what's, where it's, what it's like. And then part of me goes, that's not a bad you know, competitive tactic to say that, hey, that wasn't my fault. I'm doing everything correct. So that way your mental game stays strong. There's got to be a blend in between there because nobody likes somebody who throws it, hits a tree and says, oh, that tree was in the way that it would have been an amazing shot. It's like, yeah, we all say that. That doesn't mean that the tree wasn't there when you practiced. So anyways, but insight there, I mean, between mental game thinking and knowing that you're going to hit the putt versus hoping you're going to hit the putt, all of that stuff. Now, that was our final segment uh, snippet wrap-up from the Fellberg Show there. Go listen to it. Check it out. It's, it's excellent. I would like to take just a final few moments here. Nick's not here to stop me, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. The conversation has kind of erupted again in the chat boards about golf versus disc golf because I asked the question, and I just want to address a few more things. This is just going to be my thing. I think I'll just make a shirt about it, you know, um, talk to me about which is harder. And everyone, of course, will want to share their opinion on it. I've been told and I've seen this uh, this come up a few times that putting in golf is much harder than putting in disc golf. <clears throat> now, how do you define that? How do you actually say it's harder? And you can say, well, have you tried it? And I can say, yes, I actually played golf before I played disc golf. Now, was I an amazing putter? Well, that again needs to be defined. Was I an amazing putter from one feet? Yes. Was I pretty good from two feet? Yes. Pretty good from three feet? Yes. It starts to get harder the further away you get from the cup, correct? Yes. In disc golf, am I a good putter from one foot? Yes. Two feet? Yes. Three feet? Yes. Six feet? Yes. Eight, 10, 12, 15, 20? Yes. Um, it starts to get harder the further away you get. Now you can say, well, uh, hitting a putt in disc golf from 30 feet is way easier than hitting a, a putt in golf from 30 feet. And the answer to that question is no kidding. But I think you can't compare it directly in that manner. It's a different object. It's a ball in a cup. So what I suggest to determine this is look at the percentage of putts that go in from each distance on the pro tour level. Okay, so let's say um, a pro level golfer wants to get in 90% or 100% of their putts from five or six feet. Now go over to disc golf and look at where that same percentage lies. In disc golf, top pros want to get in 90 to 100% at 30 feet. Okay, and that's where you compare apples to apples, I think, is you say, well, what are the percentages playing out here? And then to scale that out. So a 20 foot putt in golf and you can say, well, that means it's easier. But then who's actually saying that distance makes something easier or harder? I mean, again, it's like, why, why, why? <laughs> And I'm I'm sitting here arguing with myself and the chat board. I love it. I, it's one of those things, guys. I, I'm stuck up here saying that, oh man, I could talk about this forever and it can't be determined. And I know you're sitting over there going, he's crazy. And honestly, I appreciate that. And, um, I am so glad we have people commenting here and chatting. And, um, I've, I've never played in a, a ball and chain tournament, but that'd be really fun to do. I know they come around sometimes locally to us. Um, 
anyways, share your comments, guys. This episode was truly fun. It's totally not as fun as when Nick's here. So we ask you to come back and to listen and check in again. But we wanted to give you content. Next week's show, the MVP Open, is coming to town, Leicester, Massachusetts, where I am from. Um, we the the media situation is obviously pretty different this year and on the course and spectators and all that kind of stuff is way different. I actually know spectators allowed at MVP, but the pros are coming to town and Nick has some pros staying at his house. Um, I did have some staying at my house, but right now that's not happening. But the studio is probably going to get shifted just a little bit. We might bring in a few special guests at a time. So it might be a larger show. Um, I don't want to tease out who or what because it's not confirmed. And I don't want it to be, hey, is that happening? Is that happening? And then it doesn't. So just stay tuned. We plan to have at least one show. It might get moved to Wednesday, but we'll announce that. Because with a tournament happening Friday morning, players don't necessarily want to come on the evening before a tournament starts. But anyways, just teasing that out there. Hope you guys enjoyed tonight's show. Um, yeah, Someone said, I should have had a cardboard cutout of Nick sitting next to me. That would have been pretty funny. Um, uh, hey, Nick, are you there? Are you there? <laughs> um, but anyways, enjoy this weekend. I don't know about you, but I get a long weekend coming up. And that always helps me refresh and at least tricks my brain into thinking I have um, less or more time um, when the reality is it usually gets filled up. So disc golf, have fun. Um, watch the tournament coverage. Obviously, James Conrad came out hot at um, GMC. Um, if you're listening to this during the later episode, uh, I mean, the later segment of the GMC, like Sunday or whatever, you're like, yeah, James didn't hold on. Or maybe James is, or Paul made the move or whatever it may be. But thank you guys for tuning in. We totally appreciate it. This is the Nick and Matt show. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Nick and Matt show. Be sure to check us out on your favorite social platform and subscribe on iTunes.